I'm a big believer in the focus on good storytelling as a foundation of marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also quite simply to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. In this episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com, I'm talking to Mike Troiano. So Mike Troiano is a former CMO for Actifio. And Actifio is a, a service that helps businesses to manage their data in a better fashion. He's also a venture capitalist based in Boston for G20. He spent his early career in New York for, and, and he worked for ad agencies on brands including Coca-Cola or AT&T and Taco Bell. He then served as president for many Nasdaq-listed systems integrator like Primix. He also was an executive team of mobile content pioneer M-Cube. So he's been around for a long time and he's now an advisor for startups including Drift, Drink, Intelligently or Milestone. And in this episode, we went through his personal story. He's coming from a, from, he came from an Italian-American family and, and how it shaped his personality and, and his career. We also went through why marketers should focus on emotion instead of optimization. Uh, we're also going to share a step-by-step -step methodology to create a story that people will genuinely connect with. And that's actually really interesting because we are going into a lot of details into that. And finally, we're going to talk about why people who want a job in marketing, such as young graduates, need to focus on finding a good boss instead of a good business. So that's all in this episode today. Have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Mac. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Louis. Pleasure to be here. I have a first question for you. So you're ranked in the top 1% of, you know, in as a Twitter influencer. So you're the top 1% yeah. of the, you know, in the population there. But do you think it's a great achievement given the fact that 90% of Twitter users are bots anyway? No, um, but it is perceived as a great achievement. Um, so there's a sort of meta level to, to that. I think it's, it's one of those interesting metrics that um, is sort of outwardly impressive until you think about it. Um, but you're absolutely right. Being in the top 1% of Twitter influencers is not that mathematically impressive. And yet it's something people come to again and again. So, um, I, you know, it just struck me one day and I put it in after after um, I did the math myself. And um, but very few people realize that. So kudos to you for noticing. How many how many users do Twitter have now? Is it like 400 million or 300 million? S something like that. I think it's hard to pin them down on active users because obviously things are somewhat in flux there. But um, but uh, no, that is not that is I'm, I'm actually probably somewhere in the in the, I tried to figure it out on cloud and it was like the 0.00 something percent, but 
that number was was much less uh, memorable than than just saying you're in the top one percent. I have another question I wanted to ask you. It's not going to be on, on on like like this for the for the rest of the show, but I wanted to ask you this. Um, so you're you're a Harvard graduate, right? Did you actually go there, or was it a, a one day online course? <laughs> no, I, I went to the Harvard Business School. Uh, there, uh, it's a two-year program. No excuses. Uh, no night. No night school. No no variation. It's um, uh, yeah. I'm a I'm a two-year HBS grad. Wow, that's actually impressive. I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> um, right. So let's get into the more serious question. How did you discover marketing? Do you remember the first time you kind of, you know, felt that marketing was one of the things that you liked to do and that you wanted to to get involved in it. Yeah, you know, it came from some reflection. So I went to Cornell as an undergraduate, another American university, and and I, I did not do well there. My first semester, I think I got a 1.6, and I followed that up with a 1.4, uh, which are both failing grades um, in our system. So uh, I had to have a chat with the dean, and the dean said, well, you know, you're, 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 I think you're a smart guy, Mike, but you're not applying yourself. And and I'm not sure why. I noticed you failed the two classes in your major as well. Uh, you know, I was a, an economics major at the time. And, and he said, do you like economics? And I said, no. And he said, well, if you can decide what you like, you can study that here. If not, you're going to need to go be an economics major someplace else. So um, I, I went away and sort of reflected on what I wanted to do. And, and that inevitably led to some reflection on what, what made me unique. And I decided, you know, I was a pretty creative person, but not the most creative um, that I knew. Uh, I was pretty analytical, but not the most analytical. But it struck me that somewhere at the intersection of those two things, that few people had who had my same aptitude for creativity were analytical. And few of the people I knew who were analysts seemed to be as creative, that there was something in the intersection of those things. And I felt like if I could find something that was at the intersection of those, then I, I could be, you know, I could be unique. And And so after it was really sort of thinking about that. And I thought about maybe like designing airplanes or being an architect or whatever. I hit on this idea of, of marketing and advertising that just seemed like right in the sweet spot of what made me special. And uh, that was really where it started. And uh, I've been focused on that ever since. What, what was your first job involving marketing? I uh, took an internship at a, um, at a small agency in Boston between my junior and senior years of college just to kind of learn what it was like inside an agency. Um, I worked mostly, you know, for the copywriters in that experience, uh, but it was a small shop and I, I just loved everything about it. I loved the spirit of the agency and the camaraderie. I loved working with clients. Um, I, I loved writing. I've, I've always been a writer and, and it's something that helps me organize my own thoughts and is, is a real pleasure for me. So, uh, and I, and I seem to have an aptitude for both the relationship side of the business and uh, you know, the, the actual marketing strategy part of it. So before you are such a, a big deal, cause you're a big deal, aren't you? I mean, you're, you're, you're a smart guy. You've been doing a lot of things in the last few years. And I want to get into the, why you're such a driven guy. Uh, why do you think you're this way? Is there any particular events in your life that made you who you are today? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm the first in my family to go to college. My, um, uh, I'm an Italian American, and um, you know my my father was a professional. He was a sales guy at a tech company, uh, multiple tech companies in Boston. My mother was a hairdresser and uh, a homemaker. Uh, took care of us, um, you know, full time eventually. Um, and and I I 
I always had a sense of kind of wanting something more than that. And, and I had a sense of, of wanting to do something that, um, that, that had significance that really mattered that had an impact. And, um, it's interesting that, that when I, when I left that sort of world, um, to go to Cornell, um, I sort of, you know, really sort of shook it off and I, I, I wanted no part of it. I, I was sick of like, you know, Italian food and like, I wanted to shake that off and be, you know, an Ivy league, you know, student and, and go to, I went to New York and I, I was a, you know, first a bouncer and then a bartender for a while and made my way through the agency ranks and I bought great suits and, and I kind of ran away from it a little bit. And as I, as I kind of, you know, matured and um, was exposed to more of the world, I realized that, that the world worked, you know, in a very similar fashion to the world that I'd grown up in. It was a lot about who you knew. Uh, it was a lot about taking care of people. It was a lot about relationships. And, and I think that that, that, realization, the reconciliation of the world I grew up in with the world that I'd become a part of as, uh, you know, a graduate of these great universities and a participant in, you know, some of the world's largest agencies. I, you know, when those things came together for me, I feel like my career really started to go to the next level. And so that's, that's my story, I guess. And how long did you, did you go without eating pizza? That's, uh, never more than a week. Oh, it's okay. Uh, so you didn't yeah, really no, say no. no to Italian food too much. No, no. I, I, um, I look, you know, I'm, I'm just a man, Louis. <laughs> um, any other Italian dishes that you would recommend, uh, outside of the, cause I felt bad saying pizza cause it's really cliche, but is there any particular Italian dish that people don't really know about that you would recommend? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think in terms of really dishes when it comes to Italian food, I think of Italian food as more of a philosophy of just, you know, just buying the best stuff you can find uh, wherever you are and then preparing it in a way that doesn't, you know, fuck it up too bad, you know, um, with all due respect to your um, to your your personal heritage. Um, I find that French cuisine is is has similar in some like some of the Mediterranean stuff I, I like. Um, but I feel like, you know, the French have a way of, of you know, elevating things away from perhaps their natural state. Whereas I think the Italian sensibility is a lot more to leave it kind of unmessed with. And so I think uh, Italian is sort of a state of mind as more, more than a dish. But that's a good point. I, I want to fight against what you just said, but I, I actually agree. Uh, it's true. I think the Italian food is, is simpler. It respect more the ingredients. It's a little bit more, it's a bit less, yeah, it's a little bit less, how do you say that? A process in a sense, uh, where yeah. we tend to try to overdo things a little bit. That's, that's how we do it in France. Uh, but anyway, this podcast is not about food, is it? But all, past, all podcasts are about food. Yeah, that's right, true. Right, actually. Right. I could talk about food for an hour. If you don't mind, we can go over that. Right. Let's talk about marketing in more details. Um, the reason why I, we are talking together today is because I saw one of your tweets on Twitter recently and I, I kind of knew in one tweet that you would agree with like the philosophy I'm trying to, to promote and spread. And you told me a few things over emails that I really, that I really liked. Uh, so let's get into that. So first of all, why do you think marketers have a bad reputation in general? I think that most marketers are focused on, you know, optimizing the outputs of marketing as opposed to delivering results to the business. You know, if you look at the different parts of the organization that that are, you know, held in, in lower regard, you know, I would say marketing is probably at the top of that list. But like take something like HR, um, 
you know, a lot of organizations, they don't hold, you know, human resources. It's the vast majority of your cost structure. It's every business in the world says the most important thing about us is our people. And yet so few organizations hold HR in, in high regard. Why is that? I would say that it's because most HR organizations, you know, they're focused on, on you know, optimizing for HR policy or on, on treating human relations as something that independent and frankly, at often at odds with the financial interests of the business itself. And so it's held at arm's length. It's sort of viewed skeptically by, I think, senior executives. And, and it's been held back, I think, as a result of that perception. Um, I think of marketing in many ways in a similar vein is that I feel like marketing, you know, I, I, I used to say in, a, in unkind moments that it was, it was the last bastion of mediocrity in the American corporation because it was, it was, the, la it was the last place you could hide from accountability. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my dad was a sales guy and he held marketing people in very low regard. Um, and part of that was like, you know, he used to say like, you know, show me a sales guy and take away quota and I'll show you a marketing guy. And so, so I, I think it sort of starts with that. It starts with this sensibility that it's a place that you can go and be creative and, and kind of hide from a kind of ability, you know? Um, and, and, and what happened over time as digital became more, more prominent, is marketers sort of saw this as, as their opportunity to like fix this. And so they went out and created all of these, all these metrics and like it was highly measurable, right? Um, it was incredibly precise. You could measure with great precision the quote unquote impact of your marketing. But I, but I think marketers confused precision and accuracy. You know, today I think marketers are very precise in the way they measure exactly what the marketing did, but, but it oftentimes wholly inaccurate as to the question of whether what they are doing is valuable to the business. So, um, so I think about marketing as, as, as really the business case for marketing in a company like ours. So, you know, uh, Actifio is a uh, enterprise technology company. We have a very high average order value, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. We do a comparatively limited number of transactions per year, but we're sort of sales and engineering driven type of business. And, um, you know, in a business like ours, the value of marketing is to improve the productivity of the sales organization, period. You know, at the end of the day, if I look at, you know, what is my, you know, bookings in a given quarter, my sort of gap revenue, and I divide that by what am I spending on sales and marketing in total, that gives me a ratio. And I see my job, you know, as a CMO is, is to make sure that that ratio moves in a positive direction every quarter. Um, and, and over the course of my tenure at Actifio, you know, we've increased that by, by over 360%. And, and that's what matters. What I don't focus on is, you know, marketing qualified lead generation or, you know, engagement scores or, you know, Twitter clout or whatever, all, all these, what I think of are interim metrics that have become a giant distraction, um, from the ways that marketing can actually create value in a business. So let's let's get into more details into precision versus accuracy. Give me more example about the type of metrics that in marketing we tend to follow that are actually meaningless. Well, I, I think you know MQLs is sort of the the holy grail of marketing, right? Marketing qualified leads, um, and you know you've I'm sure you've seen this. This is such bullshit. Like this, the marketing people create all these leads and they throw them over the wall and the 
And then they say uh, the salespeople aren't following up on the leads and the salespeople, you know, the manager goes to talk to the salespeople and the salespeople say, well, the leads suck. And it's like, you know, it's just such a waste of time and energy and imagination. Um, and, and this is true in every relationship between every sales and marketing team I've ever seen um, for the most part. Right. Um, and, and I think I just was determined to avoid that. I, I think part of it is that that, uh, you know, my partner who runs sales and myself, we've both been a CEO. So we've both overseen both both functions. And, and we just said, look, you know, let's let's optimize this as a go to market team. Um, that at the end of the day is is what we care about is that we make the number, you know, are we growing at the right rate? Are we are we on top of, you know, productivity and the predictability of our model? And we're going to focus 100 percent of our energy on those things, um, less so on on all of the, you know, various inputs that we can measure along the way. And again, you know, I acknowledge that there are businesses that are, you know, whatever, they have a freemium acquisition model. They have a low average order value higher velocity businesses and conversion metrics from marketing, you know, are, are probably much more important there. Those businesses, the, the role of marketing is different. So I, I want to acknowledge that there are there are certainly places that are different. But for the most part, I think this bullshit between sales and marketing is massively counterproductive. And the only way to fix it, because sales is always going to focus on sales. God bless them. They're grounded in the reality. You know, marketing people have to step up and get more focused on helping sales deliver the fucking number. Uh, and, and that's really what I've tried to do. But surely, to just take devil's, uh, you know, devil's advocate on this, uh, obviously the example of the business that you are involved in is, is a, as you said, high-value leads, high-value customers. So it may be the business model is slightly different. But let's take a typical SaaS business, per se, with a, an average order value of, like, let's say, 200 euro, 300 euro, 400 euro a year, or something on those lines. Surely it's a good metric to have as a marketer to know how many MQLs you're generating and then to know how many of those MQLs turn into, uh, turn into SQLs, right? Uh, it is, but I would say that, that if you're going to focus on optimizing for a metric, you know, why not um, optimize for um, you know, um, lifetime customer value? So at the end of the day, you know, what I care about is... is um, you know, having spent this much to acquire customers, I mean, like think about the funnel, right? In, in typical SaaS. So I, I have, you know, I can optimize at the very front end. I can optimize for impressions. Um, I can optimize for click through. I can optimize, you know, for cost per action. Let's say it's, it's a, you know, some kind of, you know, raw lead. I can, you know, have apply inside sales and do a marketing qualified lead. I can do a sales qualified lead. I can do an initial customer transaction. I think the deeper you go in that chain, at the end of the day, what I care about is, is my most profitable, happy customers. Where did they come from? It's not just about like up way at the top of the funnel. You know, what is my cost per marketing qualified lead? I want to know what is my cost per, you know, you know, customer profit dollar, you know, if you will. So so the, the creation of these systems, I think that optimize for these higher funnel functions they inevitably create, um, you know, problems uh, because I'm optimizing for something other than what the business actually requires. Um, there may be channels that are incredibly productive from a marketing qualified lead standpoint that are absolute shit from a long term customer satisfaction or, or customer lifetime value standpoint. And to optimize for those, I think, is, is to abandon your responsibility as not just as a marketing person, but as a member of the executive team. 
Yeah, that's okay. So that's what I was getting into. This is why I'm doing this podcast at the end of the day is that if you take the first principle of a business, really, I mean, it sounds really simplistic and really common sense. It's all about making profit long-term, right? It's about generating money so that you can pay your staff, so that you can grow and you can have a little bit left for everybody, you know, and, and you can grow this way. And every single person in, the, in every organization should have this goal in mind, right? And exactly as you said, if you generate as a marketer 100 MQLs a month, not all of those MQLs are created equal. You might very well have two of them that are, as you, as you mentioned, the most qualified that fit exactly the, you know, the most profitable customer profile. And you might have 98 of them that are completely useless. And as marketer, our job is really to, to make sure that those two are, we recognize them and that we know that we need to get more of them. It doesn't really matter to have 100, 100 MQLs. What really matters is to create more profitable customers, right? Right. Sorry, I just got you there. Um, so before we go into more how to's and, and uh, I'd like to get into an actionable kind of methodology, uh, together in the next few minutes, but before that, let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, apart from those metrics and those optimization stuff, um, you probably know that better than me. Internet is, is, is a very crowded place at the minute, uh, and marketers are almost you know, responsible for it in some sense. We tend to ruin uh, a lot of things. Every time there's a new channel coming up, we, we, we get into there, we get in there and we put ads and we, we kind of mess up with the experience. So how do you think we could as marketers make the internet a better place? Wow. Big question. I think that, um, uh, I'm a big believer in the focus on good storytelling as a foundation of marketing. You know, we've talked about optimizing for metrics and, um, and I think that, that, uh, you know, we're in the era of, of uh, you know, the growth hacker, uh, which is a term I always hated. Um, you know, it, it implies that, uh, that, you know, all this thing can be done behind the safety of a keyboard, that marketing is sort of done in Excel, um, and that it's a very clinical process, and you have so many inputs and so many outputs. And, and I think that that is really not what marketing is at all. Um, I think at the end of the day, marketing is a process that begins with with storytelling that's rooted in customer benefit. And I think that that the best marketers I've known, they've been, you know, if you will, students of human response, meaning they, they tell a story and they watch to see how a prospect responds and they adjust that story and they refine and they, they're, they're constantly on the lookout for how human beings are actually reacting to the messaging that they're putting out there and using that to refine you know, not only their messaging, but but their product. You know, I think that that's the other important thing that that good marketing people do is they shape the product uh, and not just the message um, over time. So, you know, I, I think number one is is a, a renaissance of storytelling and a movement away from a movement away from the idea that marketing is 100 percent about the optimization of metrics and this sort of growth hacking sensibility and and much more about the human dimension of storytelling and, and empathy. I think that's number one. So less about metrics, more about the people. Yeah, there's, there's meat in the machine. Uh, you know, there's, there's like all these numbers and, and all this Excel. There's, at the end of the day, like you have to have something that works. I mean, 
this is a, these are dark times in America, just politically, and I don't, I don't want to go, go down a rat hole of, of what's happening here. But, but, but if you look at what happened in the last election, you know, I feel like you had, you had, you know, a candidate um, who at the end of the day was, was incredibly metrics driven and divided the population very neatly into target segments and optimized MQLs and, and social outreach and, and played this game of kind of identity politics and optimized these different situations. And it was all, it was optimized. And then you had a candidate, you know, I would say a vastly less qualified candidate who was all about a big story and good message discipline and theatrics and, and, and just hammering away at a simple idea. And, you know, we saw, we saw which, which one, uh, which by, by a lot, despite a massive, you know, difference, you know, I would say in the, in the nature of those two, if you will, products. Um, and, and I see that in category after category is, is that, um, you know, where you see good storytelling, where you see good communications discipline, um, yes, applied, you know, I'm not saying you can be completely where you live in a digital age and you'd be foolish to ignore all the tools that enable you to measure audience response. Um, but the pendulum has to swing back a little bit from this sort of, uh, you know, I, I just think we've gone way too far down the path of this, this sort of growth hacking mentality. Uh, that's my view. But that's something you talked about. Uh, I've seen a few presentation of yours where you're saying that the first thing is, is the emotional response. Like people, people think people have emotions all the time and they feel before they think. And as you mentioned, uh, in the U.S. election, that's exactly what happened. One candidate was, was really, you know, reaching out to, to the emotions of the people out there. And the other one was like really trying to rational, to rationalize everything. Uh, and as you said, to optimize. By the way, for the listeners who obviously can't see Mike's face when he see optimize, it's, it doesn't mean it in a good way. He's like, <laughs> he's really mad about this world. So, um, yeah, but that's, that's it, isn't it? So it, emotion before, before the rational. Well, what I, what I like to say to, to people is that, if, that if you want to change what someone does, you have to change what they feel and not just what they think. You know, I know I should not have a donut, right? <laughs> but I want a donut. I know rationally I shouldn't have a donut. I know that. I'm a smart person. I know that I should not have that donut. And yet I want the donut. You know, you know, it's not to say people are irrational, but we are not merely rational. We all do things all day. We make big decisions. We make decisions on where to work, you know, where to live, who to marry, where to go on vacation, like what house to buy. These are our emotional decisions. And emotion plays a huge role in, in affecting our behavior. And so, so you know, as a marketer, you, you have to understand, you know, if your goal at the end of the day is to change what someone does, you know, it, it's, it's, it's vastly more important to, to, to change what they feel than it is just what they think. Now, if people interpret that in the wrong way, you know, as being like that this is about sort of emotional manipulation or words that have a sort of slightly negative connotation. I'm, I'm really not saying that. I'm just saying that that we are emotional beings. We're wired in a certain way at the lizard brain level. Um, and we're, we're wired to, to embrace stories in, in, in ways that are never going to change. And so, you know, as a marketer, it's very important to understand those drivers of human behavior, uh, which very often are not intellectual or rational ones. So that's all well and good. And, and people, I'm, I'm pretty sure listeners understand that, that we need to, to be more focusing on emotions and, and change the way people feel. But let's take an example of a, 
of a marketer, head of marketing in a team of five or six marketers and, and they have a, the business, let's say, you know, 50 employees, 60 employees, and they are growing and, and they have targets every quarter. The CEO is putting them under pressure to reach those targets. And, and I can hear them in my head telling me, you know, well, it's all well and good. This, this beautiful, you know, you make, you need to make people uh, change the way people feel, but how does it, how does it play down like day to day? How do we, how do we actually do that? So I'll, if you want for the next few minutes, we'll try to, you know, to create a sort of a, a to-do list or an action plan or, or sort of a methodology that people can take away from this episode and apply to their business. So I'm head of marketing for this marketing team and I want to change the way people feel so that I can, you know, they can change the way they do thing, they do thing and, and use my product. How do we do that? Well, I think it starts by uh, figuring out the emotional benefit at the core of your product experience. So, you know, I was at Actifio for five years and my third day at the company. Um, so Actifio, a, a big, it's essentially a data virtualization company. We help global enterprises deliver and access data as a service, you know, the same way as they do um, software and infrastructure, you know, available instantly on demand wherever they need it. That's essentially Actifio's value proposition. Um, and so it's a, it's a very technical, you know, um, kind of uh, value prop, not unlike sort of what VMware did for um, compute, we do for, for storage. We virtualize data, decouple it from physical storage. All right. So my third day at the company, I, I uh, came to a customer, um, we had a, a customer session to sort of talk to customers, get their feedback on the release of the product at that time. And, and we sat in on this thing and the marketing people had sat in, the company had not had a CMO up to the time that I joined, but I sat in on this thing and I sort of following along. It's very hard to understand sort of the technical details, but I was doing the best I could to keep up. And I kind of got through it and, and they were describing what this, the platform had done for them. And, um, you know, towards the end of that meeting, I said, the first time you were able to recover data on the Actifio system, right? So, so many times these databases, like it could be a 25 terabyte Oracle database and and it goes down and it could take days for a customer to recover before Actifio. And after Actifio is deployed, they could access that data in 34 seconds. So just to give you a sense of, of the impact. Um, and we'd always talked about that benefit in terms of the time horizon and whatever. But I said, the first time you recovered that database, you know, how did it make you feel? And I remember vividly my team the engineers, the product people, uh, customers, everyone just sort of looking at me like I was a freak. Um, and there was silence. And I just let it, I just let it stay silent just to exert pressure on other people to say something. And, um, and then finally someone said, it felt great. And I said, well, you know, help me understand. And um, he was like, well, I knew that I was going to be okay if something went wrong. You know, he said, I, we had an outage at my company and, and I ended up being inside the office, like in the building from Thursday to Sunday, um, couldn't leave the building. And since that, that was five years ago. And since then I've kept, um, six packages of ramen noodles in the lower, my lower desk drawer, just afraid of waiting for this to happen again. And, and after I saw what Actifio did, I didn't need those anymore. 
And, and it was wonderful. And then someone else said, yeah, he said, you know, I, it, it changed the way that I, I spend my weekend. Um, because I was always aware that if my, something happened in my beeper or, or, um, uh, you know, I might need to get into the office. And so there was only so far that I could go away, particularly in these windows where, where something important was happening. We were doing a DR test or whatever. And, um, and, and it, it, it freed me up to, to be able to kind of go further. Uh, you know, in retrospect, I lived for years with like this, you know, tether to the office, even when I wasn't in the office. And then, then finally, a third customer said, said the first time I recovered the data set with Actifio was, it was like, it was like the first time I kissed a girl. I swear to God. I swear to God. That's what he said. And my team was like in shock. All right. So when I talk about emotional benefits, so, so what is the core of it? So what that says to me is that the emotional benefit of Actifio is freedom, that we're going to liberate you from the tyranny of 20th century, you know, storage architecture. And, and we're going to help you get out from underneath this sort of, you know, this anvil um, of the inability to recover data and the way that, that, you know, that lets you meet your own internal SLAs, service level agreements, you know. Um, and that idea of freedom, finding different ways to infuse that emotional benefit into the various things we did has been a, a lot of what I've spent the last five years at Actifio doing. It's looking for ways to infuse the emotional benefit of freedom into every touch point with the external marketplace. So let me, let me cut you right there. So that's, that's critical. That's a really interesting story, and thanks for sharing it. If I had to break it down into, into different steps, so the first step is talking to customers, isn't it? It's trying to understand, by, by understanding what your product does for customers and, and, and how, how it makes them feel, you kind of have to talk to them because you can't really guess that from just yourself. Like you wouldn't have known that without talking to those people, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter what it does. It matters how it makes them feel. Those are two very different things. Um, and and a, I think a lot of marketers are very focused on what it does or what they think it does, but insufficiently focused on, on how a customer feels as a result. So yes. So that's the step one, like talk to customer, understand how your product makes them feel. And then you kind of, because you worked on that for a long time, you kind of of, of spend 10 seconds explaining it, but I think that's also deserve a little bit of explanation. So based on those responses, you are able to come up with the key, the core emotion, the key, I'm almost keen to say the key kind of job to be done that those customers, you know, want to, to achieve, right? Like to feel free, to be free, to feel that they don't have this burden. Uh, of constantly checking their phone or whatever, if you know something happens in their office that they have to come back to, um, is that would 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 it be a, a good way to define? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that what you need to do after you figure out what it is is distill it down to something the organization can understand. Okay. So you know, I gave you the one word. You know, it's always great to have one word, freedom, right? So you know, I think you could you could come up the 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 four page you know contact report coming off of that customer session, like it's not enough to just hand that to people because some people will read that. Some people won't, no one will remember it, you know, but when I come out of that room and I'm like freedom and I'm just hitting people over the head with that one word day in and day out. Um, and I'm looking for different ways to infuse that one idea to have every external touch point with Actifio 
infused with this notion subtly, you know, not always not using that same word, but, but, you know, so, you know, it starts, let's take something as simple as identity. So Actifio, when I started, had this very dark kind of brand identity. It was sort of black and, uh, you know, they think they were trying to be cool, but it had like grays and blues. There was some purple in the palette, but just felt very dark. It was a sort of heavy typeface. Um, and so, you know, when I did the, the, you know, overhaul the identity, I said, I want lightness and, and newness and freedom and difference, you know, and every other, you know, data management storage company in the world was blue. And I said, okay, the opposite of blue is orange and we're going to be orange. And the brightness of that, you know, that orange became a kind of signature cover color for us. And, and we created a different typeface that was more modern, a more of a sans serif kind of open feeling to it. And, and, you know, created, you know, white backgrounds and, and, you know, white space, more of a kind of Apple um, sensibility. And, and we weren't afraid to, you know, leave margins on our white papers and blah, blah, blah. And so these things are trivial things in isolation, but collectively, overall and over time, if they're sustained, they deliver an impression to the marketplace about what the company represents. And, and you create that emotional association that, that, uh, that this company is about something more than just, you know, clinical data virtualization. It's about whether the customer can, can articulate it using the same word or not. There's a sense of freedom in the way that they interact with Actifio. So you've managed to, you, you've managed to, to, to simplify those conversations you had with customers into one key word that you were then able to distill throughout the company for months and years. Um, I'm curious about how you managed to convince sales, per se, because as you mentioned before, salespeople are usually quite, you know, rational uh, instead of being too much uh, of emotional people. How did you convince them that this was a big deal, that freedom was the key uh, kind of emotion that customer had to feel, or prospect at least? Well, salespeople at the end of the day are, are incredibly practical people. And at the end of the day, they will do what works. Uh, and, and so if you want to change their behavior, you have to show them um, something that's more effective than whatever they've been doing up to now. I think that that in the beginning, my approach with them was to, you know, go out into the field and, you know, open with customers, tell the story in the way that um, I felt would be more effective based on my interactions with customers and show them, you know, one by one, team by team that that way was, in fact, more effective at getting customers to begin to describe their problems for us and begin to get excited about the potential of what we could do for them. Um, and then over time, as, you know, salespeople began to adopt this approach to celebrate the successes of the people who, uh, you know, were getting results um, and to start to reinforce those behaviors and uh, it, you know, it's like any behavioral change program. It's just it's it starts with being very clear and explicit about the behavior that you're trying to model. And then it's about, you know, reinforcing the adoption of that behavior by celebrating the successes of the people who do. Um, you know, that's how it starts, I think, initially. Over time, marketing, you know, in a company like ours is much more about observing what's working and what isn't on the ground and then distilling those best practices for the benefit of, of the global sales team. Um, but, but at the very beginning, it was definitely about, you know, formulating something at corporate 
that would be more effective than what we had been using and then kind of, um, you know, introducing that to the field in a more systematic way. So I'm curious about the actual actionable item for that particular piece. You mentioned the story that you shared with people. Did you actually have a corporate document with a, a typical customer story that you were sharing? What yeah. was the mean? Yeah. So, so, um, one of the things that, um, I think was really important to our success is we used to have this, you know, intro slide deck. I think it was 68 slides when I started. And, um, this thing was a, was a nightmare. Um, It was a nightmare. It was death by PowerPoint. And um, and uh, it's just shocking to me how many companies have this, but, but we definitely had it. And so what we said was, look, you know, there's lots of different things Actifio can do. And we want to focus less on, on explaining to every customer everything that it can do and focus more on getting them to a place where they will begin to tell us what they want. Right? They will describe their data management challenges. And so we can respond by emphasizing just the aspects of our platform that serve those particular requirements. And so what is the minimum level of communication, the sort of minimum introductory narrative that is required to get them talking about their problems? And we called that deck the CXO. CXO meaning short for chief you know, whatever officer, chief information, chief digital, whatever. But it's an executive level introduction to Actifio that is meant to be delivered in 12 minutes or less. And so this very simple story to be able to go into an account, ideally at an executive level, tell this high level story that is the foundation of the Actifio IP. And then and then very quickly move from that 12 minute narrative um, to a whiteboard session to try and map out their current approach and identify their key problems. And then, and then, you know, set up a subsequent conversation where we can begin to describe for that customer exactly how our technology can help deliver the things that are most important to them. So, so really re-engineering the front end of the sales process to be much more about, you know, discovery and, and targeted benefit communication and much less about you know, just pounding them with the 4,000 things that, you know, 4,000 reasons Actifio is great, you know, um, that was a huge change for us. And I think, you know, the rest of our sales process kind of flowed from that. So there's no excuse ready for anybody else. Like, as you mentioned, Actifio is a very complex product and you can make it as complex as you want by creating slide deck that have like hundreds of slides, because there are probably a lot of features, a lot of different things you can talk about, but Because you guys managed to simplify it to the core of, of what it does. And you were then able to extract the right information from, from prospect by asking them their key issues and making them talk and understand exactly how your solution can solve their problem. So I That's think right. anybody can do that then, you know, it, based on your solution and the complexity of it, anybody yeah. with a product can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the way, you know, it's like this, you know, Simon Sinek's, TED talk, you know, start with why. Um, if, if you're, if, you know, all, all you're really trying to connect with the customer on in that initial meeting is, you know, they want to know why this matters, right? They're, they're going in a hundred different directions. They, they took this meeting because, you know, the inside sales guy bugged them and 
they were just, you know, had an argument with their wife and they got to go to the bathroom and they got a meeting with this guy who's a pain in the ass later and they got to take their car into the dealer later. I mean, and they sit down and they're going to let you go through your friggin' slides. And, you know, the guy comes into the room and he's, that's where he is, right? Mm-hmm. Every sales guy knows that, that, you know, no one's sort of sitting there like desperate, excited about you going through your, you know, your 400, you know, PowerPoint slides. So you got to find a way to, to, you know, the beginning of every presentation is always, okay, why should I pay attention to you for the next, you know, 30 minutes? Um, and, and you got to lead with something that's relevant and, and interesting and new and different. And, and, and that's a story, you know, you got to be able to tell a story that is compelling and that, that is simple and comprehensible enough to begin to draw me in, to want to hear more about how this might be able to help me. That's what you're trying to accomplish. That's fantastic. That's fantastic advice. Um, so let's try to summarize it very briefly. First of all, talk to your customer, understand, you know, the key emotions that, that they feel using your product. Two, try to simplify it to a, a concept that is basically one world. Three, distill down, you know, distill that to, to the company and, and repeat and repeat this message over time. Uh, four, create a story that is simple enough for, to introduce to, to prospect and, and to people. Uh, and five, ask questions and be curious about their problems. And six, the, your job is done. It's much easier then for salespeople to close them. Um, would that be a good summary of what we discussed? Yeah, that's a good framework. Right. So I meet regularly uh, uh, people asking me, you know, I'm new to marketing or, or I'm a young graduate and I'd like to find a job in marketing or, or in the digital marketing industry. What would be your number one advice for those people looking for a first job in, in marketing? Find someone who you can learn from and have great humility with respect to how you can help that person. Uh, I I think it's so important. You know, when I I reflect on my career, uh, I had certain talents, I think, brought to the table. You know, no, no doubt about that. But I was incredibly fortunate to work with people who who helped me understand this stuff uh, and who shaped my own thinking about it and who invested the time to explain why I was doing whatever menial task I was doing. And that was so key. And, and throughout my career, I've sought those people out. And, and I think of all the, you know, way more than any talents I brought to it out of the gate, my ability to find those people and, and earn their loyalty and support, get their help in developing my understanding of marketing and business and the world, frankly, um, has been, has been, you know, incredibly important. So, so I would say the person you work for out of the gate is probably more important than the place you work for them. Uh, working for a dick in a very cool, you know, big brand name company is going to be way less valuable to you than working for someone who takes an interest in your success at a smaller and less sexy place. Uh, I think over time, it's great to have those brand name companies on your resume. Um, but, but, uh, you know, but, but the, right out of the gate for the person that you described, I think it's critically important to find the right, um, boss. Number one, uh, number two, humility. You know, I, I interview, you know, kids coming out of college and, and I ask them why they want to be on marketing and, and some of them will say, well, I have great ideas. Um, or, you know, or I love marketing or I love this ad or whatever. And I'll say, okay, well, you know, what's your idea about this? Or what are the two or three ads that you enjoy or whatever? And, and many of them can't even answer that 
question in a way that's satisfying. Some of them can. But I remember starting out, you know, someone said to me, you know, why should I give you this job, Mike? I said, because I'm going to come into this place and I'm going to work my ass off to make you look good. And and that is such a different mentality um, than than because I'm the man and I have great ideas and I'm like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to you know help shape this company out of out of the gate. Um uh, it, it's about like you got to come in and you got to pay your dues. You got to do the grunt work. You got to, you know, that quid pro quo that you're going to have where you're getting exposed to these higher level things comes at the price of a willingness to do whatever menial task is required to make the team successful. And and I think young people who come in understanding that, who come in with that expectation, not to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, trained and supported and coddled and whatever. And I don't want to get into the whole like, you know, millennial cliche because. Um, because I think it's, it's broadly unfair. Um, and this has been true of every generation, but, but having the humility to understand, like, you're going to come in and you're going to, you're, you're a drone, you're a body and you're going to, you don't know shit. Uh, you don't know shit about marketing, certainly. And so come in and work your ass off and do what I tell you to do and make me look good. And in return, I'm going to help you understand what's happening in the bigger picture. And that's going to make you better. Um, you know, when you have someone that is in that mindset, and, and that's open and they're like a sponge and they are smart. They can write, they can communicate. There's a certain foundation of talent. But I think in that broad universe, the people that win are those that, you know, can identify a mentor who can help them grow and who are willing to do whatever shit work is necessary to help that mentor succeed. That's the key. <laughs> um, I tend to I tend to think as well as a marketer, I was like as a marketer, the, the current, the state is always that nobody cares. Nobody cares about us. Nobody cares about the product. Nobody cares about Amen. the brand, right? Amen. So whether the... you get married, you're not even married. Yet. <laughs> so uh, there are two things. So what you, what you just said, uh, the, the first thing is I'm going to forget it. Um, you said, yeah, you need to make other people look good and you need to think that nobody cares. And I think once you have those two things, Together, as a young graduate, you're going to do great in marketing. It's not rocket science, Louis. Well, it kind of is. It kind of is. I mean, it's, 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 it seems like common sense, obviously, and, and it will be kind of... But I think it needs to be repeated. As you mentioned with your the freedom example that you gave earlier on, it needs to be repeated uh, because many people forget it. And, and, and we are talking about graduates here. Even marketers you know, that have years and years of experience, don't even, don't even think that people don't care, but they don't care. People don't care. That's the, the key. That's why we need marketers. If they did care, you would, we wouldn't have a job or at least not this type of job. That's right. That's right. Uh, right. Last question before, before we can wrap up this, this, uh, very good episode. Um, if you had to pick three resources, they could be books, podcasts, uh, anything um, to to recommend to marketers and digital marketers in particular, what would they be? I would say the first book is Ogilvy on advertising. David Ogilvy is, I would say, the father of modern advertising and grew up in a great copywriting tradition, um, created Ogilvy um, uh, and made their, um, the agency, Global Agency Network, I was proud to be a part of uh, for, uh, for uh, a period. And he just that book uh, is just it's it's the it's the foundation of of everything. I think 
how to write, how to talk to customers, what advertising is really about. And it's just, you know, it, it's one of only a handful of books in my life where I think at least two or three times a week, uh, I'll recall something, um, you know, relevant or interesting or useful. So Ogilvy on advertising absolutely must have text uh, to understand uh, the basics of advertising and marketing. The second book is, um, is a book by Steve Martin called Born Standing Up. And it takes, you know, it's Steve's story. It's written by him from, you know, he was doing a show at Knott's Berry Farm for six people, you know, his first comedy show as a young man. And it goes from that all the way to, you know, five sold out shows at Carnegie Hall, where he's the biggest comedian in the world. And, and what I loved about it is, is it shows his process which is, you know, you write 10 jokes and, you know, you know, two of them kill and six of them suck and and two of them are OK. And so you write six new jokes and and then, uh, you know, three nights later, you have three jokes that kill and and, uh, you know, four that are OK and then a couple that suck and you change those. And and just over time, you know, month in and month out, show after show after show. You're writing new material and refining the material you have to make it more effective and compelling. And you're watching closely as the audience responds um, to know what note to hit and what beat to take and what word is funny and what word isn't and refining your material to the point where you can go on stage and have 90 minutes of material that just kills every time. And that is the marketing journey, uh, certainly in a startup, but I think even at a larger company, it is a process of beginning with a sort of hypothesis and then and then using that in the outside world and learning from the interaction with customers uh, how to shape that core story in a way that just is incredibly effective at at changing what they you know think feel and do and that that is um i think this book lays that process bare, bare in a way i think is incredibly valuable um and then the third thing is, of course, my podcast, How Hard Can It Be? <laughs> you know, if any of this has resonated with, with your audience, uh, they can follow my blog at MikeTrap.com. Uh, follow the podcast. We really try to get into the sort of real world versions of entrepreneurs, investors and marketers uh, who are struggling with these kinds of issues in the real world. And, and uh, people can certainly get more of this there if they're interested. Well, I'm looking forward to, to your invite uh, to your podcast. I, you should expect that presently, Louis. Awesome. You see, I've been, I've been digging for it. Right. Mike, you've been absolutely fantastic and I genuinely mean it. That's what I like to do during episodes. I like to really create methodologies that people can take away because that's always something that seems to be missing when we talk about the big picture is how to actually do it day to day. So thank you so much. You've been really helpful. And I guess I'll talk to you very soon then. Thank you, Louis. It's been a pleasure. Bye. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you 
my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.